Hello and welcome back to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 7 of The Fall of Constantinople and the title of this episode is The Heroes of Constantinople. In the last episode we heard about how the Ottoman Sultan Mehmet II mustered a huge army in 1452 to attack Constantinople and how he used the latest technology to build an artillery unit of cannons to blast the walls of the city which had of course been built nearly a thousand years before when cannons obviously didn't exist. We also heard about how the Byzantine Emperor Constantine XI Palaeologus did everything he could to rouse the West to action to save Constantinople, but his efforts met with almost no response as late medieval Europe had almost completely lost the crusading enthusiasm of the 11th and 12th centuries. And as we discussed, this was really due to Western Europe having a lot of its own problems at the time, such as the Black Death, climate change, the Hundred Years war and the collapse of papal authority. But history is full of surprises and little would people at the time have guessed that they're actually on the eve of a major transformation of world history when in 1492 an Italian explorer called Christopher Columbus would discover America, an event that would eventually of course catapult Europe on its way to global expansion. And indeed not only would people at the time never have considered it remotely possible that Europe in the future could become the dominant power in the world. But also in 1453, it looked like the opposite. It looked as if Europe's days could well be numbered since the Ottoman Turks were rapidly advancing into Eastern Europe and about to capture Constantinople, the city that had been founded by the first Christian Roman Emperor Constantine the Great as the first and most important Christian city in the Roman world. So let's get back to 1453 and in this episode we'll hear about the last preparations for the defence of the city and how in spite of the apathy in the west towards its fate a number of Venetians and Genoese together with some adventurers from more distant lands felt that they couldn't abandon the city to the Turks and like true heroes they joined the Byzantines to try to save the city. As before, I'll read from my adaptive version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful book on the fall of Constantinople. Hope you enjoy it. At the end of 1452, the Byzantine Emperor Constantine XI was still trying to get help from the Pope, especially if he could put pressure on Venice to help the Byzantines. But the letters that passed between Rome and Venice make for sorry reading. The Venetians would not forget that the papacy still owed them money for the hire of galleys in 1444, and the Pope had no confidence in Venetian goodwill. It was not until the 19th of February 1453 that the Venetian Senate, on the receipt of the latest news from the east, voted to send at once to Constantinople two transports, each with 400 men on board, and to order that 15 galleys now be re-equipped and should follow them when they were ready. 
Five days later, the Senate passed a decree exacting special taxes from merchants engaged in the Levant to pay the expenses of this flotilla. On the same day, Constantine XI sent letters to the Pope, the Western Emperor and the kings of Hungary and Aragon to say that unless help was provided at once, Constantinople was doomed. Yet on the 2nd of March, the Venetian Senate was still discussing the organisation of this flotilla. It was decided eventually to put it under the command of Alviso Longo. A week later, another resolution was passed in the Senate urging the utmost speed, but the days went by and nothing was done. Early in April, letters were at last received from Rome telling of the Pope's intention to send five galleys to the east. A reply from Venice dated the 10th of April congratulated the papal cardinals on this decision but reminded them of the previous Pope's failure to pay his debts to Venice. It added that according to the latest information from Constantinople foodstuffs were more urgently needed now than men and it reminded Rome rather belatedly that ships should reach the Dardanelles before the 31st of March as thenceforward the prevailing north wind made the passage of the Straits more difficult. The departure of the Venetian flotilla was finally decided for the 17th of April but then there were further delays and postponements when at last the ships sailed from Venice. Constantinople had already been besieged for a fortnight. Pope Nicholas was genuinely worried by these delays. Already he had bought, at his own expense, a cargo of arms and foodstuffs. He dispatched it to Constantinople in three Genoese ships, which sailed about the end of March. No other government paid any attention to the emperor's appeals. In the hope of luring Genoese merchants to bring food to the city, Constantine had announced that imports would be duty-free, but there was no response. The Genoese authorities persisted in a policy of equivocal neutrality. Constantine had hoped that that great Christian warrior John Hunyadi, regent of Hungary, would take advantage of a moment when the Turks had taken away most of their troops from the Danube frontier. But the Hungarians had been crippled by their disasters at the end of Murad's reign, and Hunyadi himself was in a difficult position as his ward, King Ladislas V, had come of age on the 14th of February and resented his rule. None of the Orthodox princes could give help the great prince of Russia was too far away and with troubles of his own appeals had been made to him in vain besides Russia had been deeply shocked by the proclamation of the union of the Byzantine church with Rome the princes of Moldavia were quarrelling with each other the prince of Wallachia was the sultan's vassal and would certainly not move against him without the help of Hungary George the despot of Serbia was an even more dutiful vassal to the Ottomans and even sent a detachment of soldiers to join Mehmet's army. They fought bravely for their overlord in spite of the sympathy that they felt for their co-Christian religionists in Constantinople. In Albania, Skanderberg was still a thorn in the Sultan's side, but he was on bad terms with the Venetians and the Turks had stirred up rival chieftains against him. The Aegean lords and the knights of St. John at Rhodes were none of them in a position to intervene except as members of some grand coalition. The Byzantine despots of the Morea were kept in check by 
Turahan Bey's Ottoman forces. The King of Georgia and the Emperor of Trebizond were each of them hard put to defend their own frontiers and could spare no help. The Anatolian emirs, much as they resented the Sultan, had received too recent a taste of his power to move so soon against him again. Yet, though the governments defaulted, there were men who were ready to fight for Christendom at Constantinople. The Venetian colony in the city offered unstinted support to the Byzantine emperor. The Venetian commander in Constantinople, Girolamo Minotto, undertook to share fully in the defence of the city and see that no Venetian ship left the harbour without permission. He also guaranteed that a flotilla would be sent from Venice and wrote there urgently, demanding immediate help. Two Venetian merchant captains, whose ships were anchored in the Golden Horn on their return from a Black Sea voyage, promised to remain to join in the struggle. In all, six Venetian vessels and three from the Venetian colony of Crete were retained in the harbour at Constantinople with the consent of their commanders and were transformed into warships. Among the Venetians who pledged themselves to defend the great city, which of course their ancestors had sacked two and a half centuries before, were many that bore the most eminent surnames of the Venetian Republic, such as Cornaro, Mocenego, Contarini and Venier. They were all to be recorded in a roll of honour written by their compatriot, the sailor-surgeon Niccolò Barbaro, whose unvarnished diary gives probably the most honest account of the siege. These Venetians offer their services because they found themselves at Constantinople when the war began and were too honourable and proud to make their escape. There were also Genoese who were ashamed of their government's timidity and who came of their own will from Italy to fight for Christendom. Among them were Mauricio Catania, the two brothers Geronimo and Leonardo di Langasco and three Bocchiado brothers Paolo, Antonio and Troilo who equipped and brought at their own expense a small company of soldiers. On the 29th of January 1453, the city was cheered by the news of the arrival of a famous Genoese soldier, Giovanni Longo, a youngish man belonging to one of the greatest families of the Republic and a kinsman of the powerful house of Doria. He brought with him 700 well-armed soldiers, 400 that he had recruited at Genoa and 300 recruited at Chios and Rhodes. The Byzantine emperor received him gladly, offering him the lordship of the island of Lemnos should the be driven off. He was reputed to be particularly skilled at the defence of walled cities, so he was at once appointed to take command of the whole area of the Constantinople land walls. He wasted no time in setting about his duties, carefully inspecting the walls and seeing to their strengthening wherever it seemed necessary. Though it was hard to persuade Venetians to work with a Genoese, such was his personality that he won their cooperation. At his request, the Venetian captain Trevisano reopened and cleared the moat that ran in from the Golden Horn in front of the walls of Blacane until the ground began to rise. Many citizens from the Genoese colony at Pera joined the defence, believing, as their leader later wrote, that the fall of Constantinople would mean the end of their colony. A few soldiers belonged to more distant lands. The Catalan colony in the city organised itself under its consul Pere Julia, and some Catalan sailors joined them. From Castile there came 
a gallant nobleman, Don Francisco de Toledo, who claimed descent from the imperial house of Comnenus and so-called the Byzantine emperor, his cousin. In Justiniani's company, there was an engineer called Johannes Grant, usually described as a German, but who may well have been a Scottish adventurer who had found his way through Germany to the Levant. The Ottoman pretender, Orhan, who had been living since his childhood at Constantinople, offered his services and those of his household to the emperor. But not all the Italians in the city showed the same courage. On the night of the 26th of February, seven ships, six from Crete and one from Venice, under the command of Pietro Davanzo, slipped out of the Golden Horn with 700 Italians on board. Their flight was a serious blow to the defence. However, no one else, Greek or Italian, followed their example. There remained, when the siege opened, 26 ships equipped for fighting in the Golden Horn apart from small craft and the merchant ships of the Genoese of Pera, anchored beneath their colony's walls. Five were Venetian, five Genoese, three Cretan, one from Ancona, one from Catalonia and one from Provence, and ten belonging to the Byzantine emperor. Nearly all were high-decked boats without oars and dependent on their sails. It was a small fleet in comparison with the Turkish armada. The disparity in manpower on land was even greater. At the end of March, when the Turkish army was moving through Thrace, Constantine sent for his secretary, Francis, and told him to make a census of all the men in the city, including monks who were capable of bearing arms. When Francis added up the lists, he found that there were only 4,983 available Greeks and slightly under 2,000 foreigners. Constantine was appalled by the figure and charged Francis not to publish it. But Italian witnesses came to a similar conclusion. Against the Sultan's army of some 80,000 men and his hordes of irregular troops, the great city with its 14 miles of walls had to be defended by less than 7,000 men. Easter fell on the 1st of April 1453, but there was little joy in the hearts of the people of Constantinople. After a stormy winter, spring was coming to the Bosphorus. In the orchards throughout the city, the fruit trees were bursting into flower. The nightingales were returning to sing in the copses and the storks to build their nests on the rooftops. The sky was streaked with long lines of migratory birds flying to their summer homes away in the north. But Thrace was rumbling with the sounds of a great Turkish army on the move, of men and horses and oxen pulling their creaking wagons. For many days past, the citizens of Constantinople had been praying that at least they might be allowed to perform the rites of Easter Holy Week in peace. That much was granted to them. It was on Monday the 2nd of April, the day after Easter, that the first detachment of the Turkish enemy came into sight. A small company of the defenders made a sortie out against them, killing some of them and wounding many others. But as more and more Turkish troops appeared, the Byzantines withdrew back into the city. The emperor then ordered the bridges across the moats to be destroyed and the gates of the city to be closed. That same day, too, he gave instructions to have a great boom stretched across the entrance to the harbour of the Golden Horn. It consisted of a chain fixed at one end of the Tower of Eugenius, 
under the Acropolis and at the other to the, a tower on the sea walls of Pera, and it was supported on wooden floats. A Genoese engineer, Bartolomeo Soligo, was responsible for putting it in place. The city of Constantinople occupies a peninsula roughly triangular in shape with slightly curved sides. The land wall stretched from the Blackenai quarter on the Golden Horn to the Studian quarter on the Sea of Marmora in a gently convex curve. They were some four miles in length. The walls along the Golden Horn were about three and a half miles in length. They ran in a concave curve from Blackenai to the Acropolis Point, now usually known as the Seraglio Point, which faces northward up the Bosphorus. From the Acropolis Point to Studion was a distance of about five and a half miles. The walls went round the blunt apex of the peninsula, facing the entrance to the Bosphorus, then in a slightly concave curve along the shore. The walls along the Golden Horn and the Marmora were the weakest because they were single. Along the Marmora they rose fairly straight out of the sea. Eleven gates opened through them out onto the water, and there were two small fortified harbours to accommodate light craft that could not round the point into the Golden Horn itself against the prevailing north wind. Along the shore of the Golden Horn, a foreshore had emerged in the course of the previous centuries, which was now covered with warehouses. Sixteen gates opened onto it. At the east end, to protect the vulnerable Blackenai quarter, John Cantacuzanos had constructed a moat through the silt running directly underneath the wall. These seawalls were in fairly good repair. It was unlikely also that they would be attacked, though the Franks and Venetians had forced their way into the city in 1204 from the Golden Horn. Such an assault would only be possible for an enemy in full control of the harbour, and the boom existed to prevent that happening. Around the apex of the city, the current also ran too fast for landing craft to come up easily to the base of the walls, while shoals and reefs provided additional protection to the Marmora walls. The Byzantines expected the main attack to be directed against the land walls at the northern end of these. The Blackenai quarter jutted out from the main line of the walls. It had originally been a suburb, but had been enclosed within the walls in the 7th century, but only by a single wall. This had been repaired in the 9th and 12th centuries and had been strengthened by the fortifications of the Imperial Palace, which Manuel I had built up against the wall itself. At its lower end, it was also protected by John Cantacuzanus's moat, which seems to have run around the corner where the wall reached the Golden Horn as far as the beginning of a steep slope up which the wall climbed before turning at right angles to meet the main line of the rest of the walls. It was pierced by two gates, known as the gates of Caligaria and of Blackenai, and by a small postern gate which had been closed called the Kekapota at the angle where it joined the old Theodosian wall. The mighty Theodosian wall built by the prefect Anthemius in the reign of Theodosius II ran from this point in an unbroken line to the Sea of Marmora. It was a triple wall. On the outside was a deep ditch, a fosse some 60 feet in width, sections of which could be flooded if necessary. On the inside of the ditch there was our low crenellated breastwork within which was a passage some 40 to 50 feet in breadth running the whole length 
of the walls. Then there rose the wall usually described as the outer wall, about 25 feet in height, with square towers placed along it at intervals varying from 50 to 100 yards. Then there rose the inner wall, about 40 feet in height, with towers, some square, some octagonal, about 60 feet in height, space so as to cover the gaps between the towers of the outer wall. This line of walls was pierced by a number of gates, some used by the general public, the others reserved to the military. There was a small postern gate on the Marmora shore. Then going northward, there was the Golden Gate, which ranked as the first military gate, and which was traditionally used by the emperor when he made a ceremonial entry into the city. It was on Thursday the 5th of April that the whole Turkish army arrived outside these walls and the Sultan himself stood in contemplation. He camped temporarily about a mile and a half away. Next day, he moved his troops nearer into their final positions. The defenders likewise took up their appointed stations. The great battle for Constantinople was about to begin. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you did as usual, I'd be delighted if you wanted to subscribe to recommend it to a friend or leave a review. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about the first Ottoman attacks on the city of Constantinople. See you then. Mm -hmm.